Thank you, Kim. It's very special to be in the church where Kim is part of the pastoral team. Kim sat in many of my classes, and it's just lovely to be at your church, Kim. I'm going to call it your church rather than Ian's church because I never, I, I never got to uh, teach Ian, and uh, that's probably why you're probably the better pastor because I got to teach you. So, um, I just got a message from Alvin Schick, and we're going there for lunch. And he started the message by saying it's not every day that we get to have the preacher for lunch. I'm not sure what he means by that, having the preacher for lunch. Um, I guess I'll figure that out as we eat the wood-fired pizzas that he's promised us. But he's watching online, so um, morning, Alvin. I want to start this morning where I ended up last week so let the end be our beginning you remember that last week we talked about mirror neuron systems and suggested that they are possibly responsible for our ability to feel empathy our ability to step into the world of another we talked about oxytocin that wonderful chemical that gets released when we're intimate gets released during childbirth gets released during breastfeeding, also, however, gets released through gentle touch and has a really important role because it soothes the alarm system in our body. So sometimes when we're upset, we just need to be held. We just need a cuddle. We just need an arm around us. We just need a hand on our shoulder because it calms us a bit. It makes us feel a little bit better. We talked about the insula and the cingulate anterior cortex, parts of the brain that feel not only our own emotions and despair, but also the emotions and the despair of others. And we suggested that there was a lot of evidence that we hardwired for connection. In fact, the brain of the young infant needs interaction with others in order for the brain wiring to develop. The mirroring that happens between a young infant and the primary caregiver or other significant figures in that person's life is really important and essential to the, to the development of the young brain. Which is probably one of the reasons that as adults we say all sorts of really childish things when we have an infant in our arms. We suddenly make weird noises. We suddenly pull weird faces that we normally wouldn't and wouldn't in any other relationship. But somehow we do that with young babies. I do that with my young grandchildren. And that's really important because they actually learn how to relate and various connections in the brain get laid down as a result of that interaction. I have a very disturbing video clip that I show my students. And it's disturbing because in this particular experiment, the mother is told to stop interacting through facial expressions with the young baby. If I remember correctly, the baby is about eight or nine months old. 
And so they've got all this ooing and garring going on between mother and infant, and it's very cute, and it's very warm, and they're connected. And then mother is told for a minute not to make any responses. No facial expressions, no noise, nothing. Not to go away, but not to respond. And it's interesting how hard the young infant tries to get the mother to continue to interact through facial expressions. The baby makes the same noises that it did before. The baby pulls the faces. It does everything it did before and cannot understand why mother is not interacting. Finally, the baby gets extremely upset. And that's the part that's hard to watch because the baby gets really upset. And then the experimenter allows the mother to again re-engage. It is so essential for us from early in life to engage with others. That's the way that we were made. And there's so many more examples that we could have given of how we are a caretaking species, of how we don't only have a reaction for fight and flight, but we also have a reaction for tend and befriend. We could have talked about attachment theory. That's a whole body of work which is really fascinating, that that bond that we form as an infant with a primary caregiver actually correlates with how we do adult relationships and correlates with measures of emotional well-being such as anxiety and depression. What happens in that first year of life may help set you up for an emotional disorder doesn't mean you have to have an emotional disorder, but it may mean that it's easier for you to have an emotional disorder due to what has happened in that critical time where you form an attachment. So I would suggest to you this morning, we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. But the problem last week is we never got to the most important part of any sermon. And the most important part of any sermon is, so what? You know, what do we do with that? And we didn't get there last week. So this week, this is where we go. But we want to start by going back to the text that we looked at. And I just realized that I left the little remote control somewhere around my seat. Right, there we go, we've got it. So it's up on the screen, or grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to spend a fair bit of time in Philippians this morning, so you may want to keep your Bible open there. Let me just remind you of this beautiful passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of us should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross." I think 
there's four words that emerge out of that for me. And these are really important words, and we want to talk about these four words a little bit uh, this morning. Self-awareness, humility, empathy, and generosity. And just before you're tempted to think, how on earth did he get those four words out of that passage? Just give me a moment to explain. Just before you think that I'm twisting scripture, let me make my case to you this morning as to why those four words, I think, come out of that passage in Philippians chapter 2. So the first, self-awareness. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What's Paul talking about here? I would suggest to you that what he's talking about is motives. He's talking about motives. And motives are really, really important because they're the things that drive behavior. And Paul is challenging us, I think, to be aware of our motives. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, be aware of what drives you. Why you do stuff. And that involves self-insight. And I would argue that that's hard work. It is so much easier to blame others for how we feel, for how we react. It is so much easier to play victim. It is so much easier not to take responsibility for our emotions and our feelings. It's interesting in therapy, uh, with my clients, it is not unusual in couples therapy or individual therapy for a client to say, you know, he made me so mad. And I very, very gently kind of reframe that and say, so you got mad when that happened? Because I want to make the point that nobody makes us mad. But we may get mad in response to what somebody else did. And that's a really important difference because I would argue that the first part of self-awareness is taking responsibility for our emotions and feelings. And if we are going to have healthy relationships, whether they're in our family, in our community, in a small group, in our church, then it's about taking responsibility for our emotions and not blaming it may be hard sometimes not to get mad. It might be hard sometimes not to react a certain way. But no other person has crawled into our head and messed with our brain chemicals and caused our emotions unless we've allowed them to. So a key principle in human relationships and healthy relationships, which is what we're talking about in these two sermons, is that we take responsibility for our emotions, that we take care of our strong feelings. That may well include an assertive request to another person not to engage in a certain behaviour because it makes it hard for us not to get angry or not to feel certain emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't mean the other person is responsible for how we've reacted. They're responsible for what they've done, but not for how we have reacted. Something that I would invite you to do next time you have a fight with your spouse, 
Oh, you don't have those? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I don't either. I do have some robust discussions, though, with my wife. Um, and one of the really scary things is to ask yourself, after an interaction like that, or even with one of your adolescents in the house, to ask yourself, what was more important for me in that robust discussion? Was it more important for me to win or resolve something? Because if you ask yourself, that can be really scary. Because so often you have to, if you're really honest with yourself and really practice self-awareness, you have to go, actually, I needed to win that. That was more important than resolve. A very important question to ask ourselves. Are we there to resolve something or are we there to win? That can be a painful question, but this passage invites us, I think, to look at our motives, why we do what we do. What is it that triggers our alarm system for us to react in a certain way? Are we aware of that? As many of you would know, it wasn't the ice above the surface that the people on the Titanic could see that sunk the Titanic. That was pretty harmless. It was the 90% of the iceberg that was underneath the surface. That's what ripped that great hole in the side of that mighty ship and caused it to sink and lose the lives of 1,500 people. It is what is below the surface that gets us into trouble. It's that which we haven't yet brought to our awareness, often called in psychology and psychotherapy the unconscious. How often have you reacted in a way and you've kind of gone and scratched your head and gone, what? What? why on earth did I get so mad about that? Why did I get so upset? Why, did, why was that such a big deal? That's because of the 90%. The 90% below the surface, that's what gets us into trouble. We get triggered because of past pains and hurts and trauma. We get triggered because of stuff that we've totally forgotten about. We react in certain ways that we have learnt in our family of origin. And that's all the stuff we now bring into our current family and we bring it into our church and we bring it into any group that we are part of. And so often we have very little awareness. Very little awareness of what we do. I remember very well sitting with this couple and he got madder and madder as he told me about how his wife had an anger problem. And she sat there very calmly. Such a beautiful thing to watch. He just got madder and madder. She's really got an anger problem. He got very vexed about telling me how his wife had an anger problem. And I just went and went, isn't projection a beautiful thing? His inability to actually face his own anger meant he had to use that good old defense mechanism of actually projecting it onto his wife and seeing there that part of himself that he could not accept. Part of the iceberg that he wasn't prepared to look at. How many times has your amygdala gone off and you're not sure exactly why and you've been swamped with a whole lot of emotions and feelings that you haven't known what to do with because of a word, a look, an event, something that triggers you? 
and then causes you to act in a way that is perhaps hurtful to another or out of proportion with what has occurred. Or maybe you go into a self-protective mode. I drive a Golf. It's a really good car. I've had it for 11 years. It's still a good car. 400,000 kilometres later, it's still a good car. The only trouble I've ever had with my Golf was in the first two or three years, there was something wrong in the computer and it would regularly go into limp mode. It was like its little alarm system went off and thought that there was a problem and that it was going to wreck the engine and it would go into limp mode, which means it had no power and you limped at home and then back to the mechanic. It took them a while to figure out why the car was doing that. Well, actually, they never figured it out. They just rewired the computer and bypassed the bit that was, <coughs> excuse me, that was sending that error. Is that what you do when your alarm goes off? You go into limp mode, you retreat, you just go, you know, I'm just going to shut everything down. I'm just going to go into survival mode to protect myself because that's just easier right now. Well, limp mode will kind of get you there, but it's not a lot of fun. It wasn't fun driving the Golf when it was in limp mode. just had no power, couldn't do much. It was all it could do to just get me home or back to the mechanic. So if you don't know what to do with your emotion, if you're overwhelmed, is that what you do? You go into limp mode, you just block it out, you just pretend it's not there. Couples do this in relationships, don't they? Do you know people in a married relationship who don't talk to each other for hours or even days or sometimes weeks after they've had an argument. We have a name for that in couples therapy. We call it stonewalling. Interesting, a direct correlation has been shown between stonewalling in the relationship and divorce. One of four things that's really damaging. I'll tell you about the other three things afterwards if you want to chat to me. But out of the four things that we know are really damaging, and help lead to divorce. Stonewalling is one of them. When we shut down, go into limp mode, put up the barriers, become protective, and block the other person out. Direct relationship between that and divorce can also be a way of punishing our partner as well or punishing another person. I'm not going to talk to you because you hurt me. So there, nothing you can do now. It can also be a wonderful power play as well. Sometimes it can be very condescending. Have you ever done this one or has someone done this to you? I'm not going to talk to you while you're being so irrational. Isn't there just another way of saying is I don't know what to do with your emotion right now and I'm not centered within myself enough to be able to cope so therefore I'm going to block you out and basically tell you you're being irrational and I'll come back when you stop being a child. It can be very condescending. I think it becomes a power game so easily and contradicts the key message of this passage. And that brings us to our next word. Verse 4. Each of you should look not only to the interests, to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
You know why we get scared about humility? I think we get scared about humility because we get worried we're going to be a doormat. But being a doormat is just about poor boundaries. It's about lack of assertiveness. But sometimes we think, well, if I'm too humble, if I'm not strong enough here, I'll just be walked all over. Can I remind you of the example of Jesus? I think Jesus was an example of assertive humility. Of assertive humility. You know, sometimes we portray Jesus as a nice man. He was such a nice man. And Christianity is such a nice religion. Well, I don't think Herod particularly thought it was very nice when Jesus called him a fox. I don't think he thought that was very nice. I don't think the Pharisees got particularly excited when he called them whitewashed tombs and that they stunk of dead men's bones. I don't think Jesus was very nice. I don't think when he turned over the money changers, tables in the temple and their money went all over the place, I don't think they thought that Jesus was very nice. I'm going to suggest to you that nice has been overrated, way overrated. I'm going to suggest to you instead that what works in healthy relationships is something that I'm going to call assertive humility. Assertiveness should not be confused with aggression. Because when I'm aggressive, I want to attack you. When I'm assertive, I want to state my needs in a way that is congruent. Brings us to another really good word, congruence. It's really important. Congruence is saying yes on the outside and yes on the inside. How many times have you said yes to something? Maybe something somebody's asked you to do in church. And you've gone, sure, I'd love to do that. And every part of you inside is going, you don't have time to do that. You don't have energy to do that. You don't even want to do that. You hate doing that. And on the outside you smile and go, of course. You've done it. I've done it. Haven't we all done it? It's called being incongruent. And it can lead, I would suggest to you, to passive aggressiveness. On the outside, we're very nice about it, but we're raging on the inside. And that, I think, has the potential to start leaking out. It's like the iceberg under the surface starts to do damage and you're not even aware of it. You're not even aware that there's an edge to how you say things. You're trying to attack a little bit because you're actually angry about the fact that you're doing something that you really don't want to do. Maybe that's why Jesus said this. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. I really like that because that's about congruence, I would suggest to you. Jesus is talking about congruence. <clears throat> Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And be okay about saying no when you need to say no. How good are you at being open and honest about your needs? Because I think when we're not open and honest about our needs, then I think stuff builds up. Resentment builds up. And often we can keep a lid on it. And we may not even be aware that the resentment has built up. 
till we lash out, till we suddenly say something that we never thought we would say. We use language we never thought we'd use and we apologize profusely and it doesn't happen again for a few more months till again everything builds up again and then we let loose again. I would argue that that happens when we are not okay about stating our needs. Maybe that's why Jesus says, love your neighbour as yourself. Not more than yourself, as yourself. And I think that's the key to healthy relationships. Love your neighbour as yourself. Some of you here are as old as I am. One or two of you may even be a year or two older. Um, and you remember that what we grew up with, and I'm sure you were taught this as well, was the acronym JOY. Remember that? Remember what it stood for? JOY? Jesus first. Others second, you last. Well, the only problem with that is it's not biblical. It's not what Jesus says. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That will mean sometimes you will put yourself first and sometimes you will put others first. And that to me makes a lot more sense. So, yes, Jesus first for sure. Everybody else, including yourself, equal. Because you're no less important than anybody else. Another issue with this business of forgiveness is the fact that I think in our relationships, particularly our family relationships and our marital relationships, our couple relationships, we tend to die so often on hills that are not worth dying on. That when we look at that two or three months later, we go, why did I make that such a big deal? Let me talk to the parents of teenagers here for a moment. Sometimes I talk to the parents of teenagers and I've said to them, how many hills do you want to die on with your son? How much of an issue do you want to make this? And I decided when my children were adolescents, there was a few hills I would die on with them, but not that many. And so when my son at 17 decided to pierce his ear when he was a school prefect and he had been a model student up until then, then he turns up at an Adventist school with his ears pierced and he simply told me about it and my only question was, where are you getting it done? He said, no, no, Dad, don't worry. It's nowhere dodgy. I said, okay, as long as it's nowhere dodgy. Um, did I want to make that a hill to die on? Which is really just a fashion statement. I want to make that a hill to die on. My parents, my dad particularly, had lots of hills that he tried to die on with us kids. Listening to music was one of those. And some of you, about Kim's age, will laugh at this. Cat Stevens, that was the music I liked. Cat Stevens, good music. My father thought it was evil. Say nothing of the Beatles. Gee, that was really bad. And we died on those hills with kids. We caused family arguments. We ruptured relationships over that kind of stuff. Can you believe it? Over the colour of hair and whether or not you've got your ears pierced or both pierced or what music you listen to. Can I suggest to you, be careful what hills you're prepared to die on. 
And what really is it? What really is your motive to go back to our first point? Is it perhaps a power struggle for you? Is it perhaps out of vain conceit? Is it really about the fact that you need to win? Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Brings me to my next word. We suggested last week that we actually have the setup in our brain to do empathy. There's various parts of the brain that actually are set up for us to be able to feel the pain of another. But of course it may be that those neural connections have got a bit rusty. It may be that they haven't been built as well as they could have. We know, for example, that men find it harder to be empathic than women. Now that's a generalisation and like any generalisation, there's problems with that. However, we do know that oxytocin helps us to be more empathic and women have more oxytocin than men. So for us blokes, we have to work a little bit harder to step into the world of another. How good are you at empathy? What are you like at feeling what another feels? So when my wife comes home, and sees that I've left something on the kitchen bench that does not belong there. And speaks to me about that. There was other words I could have used for that, but let's just go with that. She speaks to me about that. Um, and reminds me that this item doesn't need or should be on the kitchen bench. I have a few options at that point. One is to tell her how incredibly busy I am. After all, I'm a lecturer at Avondale University College. I'm that important and that busy. And just to remind you, I also, run a, also am doing a PhD. So things on the bench, they're just beneath me. Why should I worry about something on the bench? I am an important person after all. And I'm busy and I'm exhausted and I'm tired. I can do all that. I can play victim. Or... I can step into her world and I can try to understand what her dream is for how our house should look like, what the kitchen should look like, what the kitchen bench should look like. And if I do that, then I don't have to react. I can simply say, sorry, babe. Um, I may still use the good old excuse, my brain is getting old and I forget stuff. Um, which doesn't work with my wife either. She's just too smart for that. Um, but, you know, I can take her concerns seriously. And I've given you a trivial example, but this goes into all kinds of things. I mean, I have the option, I believe, of stepping out of my world and stepping into her world and trying to see it from her point of view. And when I do, and those mirror neurons start to do their work, then the empathy that results helps me to get out of fight and flight mode, not to be reactive and not 
to make a big deal out of something that can be resolved so easily and so simply through understanding and empathy. The other thing that we do in communication, and blokes are really bad at this, mind you some women as well, but blokes are really bad at this. When our partner talks to us, we listen just long enough to fix them because we have the answers. The only problem is that people are not cars and they can't be fixed. Marriages can't be fixed. People can't be fixed. Healing may occur, but that's very different. Fixing. What do you like at listening? Really listening. Not listening long enough just so you can launch into your own story and go, yeah, that reminds me of... How many times has someone done that to you? You've wanted to talk about something that was pretty painful and deep and they've gone, yeah, that's awful. That's just like... And they're off. And you just know in that moment that your story doesn't matter because it's just been a launching pad for their story and your story is forgotten and your pain is forgotten. You see, it takes more energy to step into someone's pain than to stay there and to truly listen. And it's not always convenient. It is much easier to fix because then our own anxiety can go down where you go, oh, okay, great, I'll fix that. And you know what Christians do? They do fixing really well because they can use a Bible text for it. And they can just go, well, you know, you know you just need to trust Jesus. You know you just need to trust Jesus. And if anyone's ever done that to you, or a person has just said, don't worry, I'll pray for you, you know how unsatisfying that actually is. Because funny thing this, God actually does his work through us. And when somebody needs our love and care and empathy, God expects us to do it, and he's not going to do that by supernatural means. He expects us to be his instruments. I'm going to share with you a quote. And apologies to any of you who have sat in my classes. Even Josh Bolster sat in my classes. I didn't know Josh was a member here. You know, he's a, quite a dangerous boy. Yeah, I, I hope you just sort of keep that in mind. I, I know him well, so yeah, I can say that about my friend Josh. But Josh, you will remember this quote. Hopefully you remember this quote because I use it in my classes. And I can't read it from that back screen. Um, so I actually got organised today so I didn't have to turn around. No, I've done better, Kim. I don't have to turn around. Look, I printed it out in big in big print. Yeah, that's what happens. You need big print. When we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it's those who, instead of giving much advice, solutions or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a gentle and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That 
is the friend who cares. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest, also a psychotherapist and an academic. Was a professor of theology at Harvard University and was unsatisfied. And felt a calling to work with the intellectually disabled in a community called Lee Abrie Fellowship in Switzerland. And he left his prestigious job as a professor at Harvard University to go and to be the pastor to these people in this community. And he lived his life with them and died in their community as their pastor. I think Henry Nouwen knew something about humility. Counseling theories, counseling practices, counseling methods, all of them that work, work partly because of the empathy that is given. They work because of the empathy that happens in the counselor-client relationship. That's been well established by research that across all the various different ways of delivering counseling services, empathy is a key, ingredient, a key ingredient to a successful outcome. But this works not just for counseling, but in a wide variety of relationships. When we are listened to, when we are understood, when we are unconditionally accepted and not judged, then we can start to heal. Then we can start to grow, then we can start to move on with our lives. And when we do that for another person, are we not doing the work of God? I would argue that we are. We're doing the very work of God. When we give that time, when we listen not just to words, but to what is underneath the words, when we listen to the whole person, when we endeavor to step into their story, rather than sort them out, rather than give them our version of the truth, rather than give them a lecture, rather than give them advice. We are reflecting the character of our God and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. For sometimes when we want to sort people out, when we want to tell them our version of the truth, maybe that is more about selfish interests and self-conceit as the Apostle Paul says in our passage for this morning. Verse 6 to 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so our last word is the word generosity. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare up, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up I've got it here somewhere, here we go it's coming, Kim. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously 
give us all things. Generosity, I would suggest, is the fourth word that comes out of here, which is so important for relationships and healthy relationships. Let me use marriage as an example of that. I think one of the biggest mistakes that has been made in marriage today is that people have seen marriage as a contract. It's a contract. You give me this and I'll give you that. It's got to be a fair deal. Well, you know what? There's nothing fair about marriage. There's nothing fair about close relationships. There's nothing fair about parenting. In fact, it's the wrong word to use. The word fairness belongs in a courtroom. So if fairness and justice is what you're looking for in marriage, then you have a courtroom marriage. I would suggest, however, that if you can swap that to the idea of covenant rather than contract, then you have a bedroom marriage. Because a bedroom marriage is about connection and intimacy. And it's about romance. And it's about love. Numerous couples over the years that I've challenged to change their marriage from a courtroom marriage to a bedroom marriage. God, when he makes a covenant with the children of Israel, and he says that he loves them with an everlasting love, he does not expect a fair return on his investment. It's not a contract. It's a covenant Yes, he would like that reciprocated in some way, but never, ever do you get the sense that God expected it to be equal. How can we ever suggest that we will love God in the same way that he loves us, or that we will give back to God in the way that he's given us? It's ridiculous to even think about it. There is no fairness in the covenantal relationship. It's not about fairness. It's about generosity. And the sooner that we give up this idea of fairness in human relationships, particularly in families and in couple relationships, the sooner we do, I would argue, the happier we're going to be. The sooner as we get over this idea of fairness, the easier it is going to be for us to do relationships. If it's not fairness that matters, let me suggest to you what is. If it's not fairness, it's actually what works is far more important. I'm interested in what works in people's relationships rather than what may be fair because you know what? What I think is fair and what my wife thinks is fair, what I think is fair, what my children think is fair may be very, very different. And so if we drop that notion altogether and go with what works, I think we do a lot better. What works based on the principle of generosity? How much can I give here? And we're not talking about not taking care of our needs and we're not talking about not having boundaries, but we are talking about the principle of generosity. So how does that work? 1 Corinthians 13, you remember, says love does not keep score. See? Because it's not a contract relationship. It's not about bookkeeping. It's not about, I did this yesterday, so it's your turn to do that today. 
How many of us have fallen into that trap? I know I have, you know. I did that for you yesterday, therefore you need to do that for me today. And we've been sucked into making what should be a covenant relationship into a contract relationship. How do we do with generosity, with our spouses, with children, with others, with people perhaps in our small group, with people in our community? You know, the best research, some of the best research that we have on what makes marriages work comes from a guy called John Gottman. And you know what he found? Really interesting. He found that where people had relationships where they made as many positive comments as the negative comments. In other words, matched it one to one. You would think that's fair. Every negative comment matched with one positive. You know where those marriages ended? In divorce. Because Gottman's research is longitudinal. He followed these people for up to 20 years. Those marriages ended in divorce. The marriages that did well were the marriages where there were five positives for every negative. Five positives for every negative. And as Gottman says so rightly, it is far harder to build a good relationship than it is to destroy. Far easier to destroy than it is to build. The principle of generosity. Make a heck of a lot more positive comments than you do negative ones. We know that that works. Look for opportunities to affirm. Be generous. Be, be generous in your words, and I would suggest to you, based on what we've talked about these last two weeks, be also generous with your touch. Now, obviously, there are boundaries and there are appropriateness and inappropriateness. But human touch is such an important thing, and I think it was one of the biggest tragedies of COVID that we were told to physically distance and we were told not to touch each other. And I understand why, and I agree with all the medical advice, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we missed out on a lot when we couldn't meet each other and give each other a hug, when we couldn't have that human touch that we so much crave and need. And for those of us in intimate relationships, that's okay because we were able to do that at home. But what about people who lived alone, people who didn't have that? How much have they missed out on? We are also generous when we look for the very best in people, when we speak to the best in people, when we give people the benefit of the doubt, when we shelve our prejudices and our biases and we go, you know, I'm just going to hear you out. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to step into your world and see what happens when I do that. Generosity means giving people not what they deserve, but giving them what they need. Because is that not exactly what God did? So we've talked about the various bits in our brain. We've talked about the fact that we are caretaking species. species. We've talked about the importance of social relationships and how tricky it can be to trust. And the fact that people are not always easy. And that they can trigger us. And this morning we suggested four key words. Self-awareness. In other words, asking ourselves those difficult questions. What really are our motives? Am I just trying to win here? Is it just a power struggle? What really goes on inside of me that I react this way? 
Secondly, we talked about humility. Humility that avoids power struggles. Humility that can indeed step into the world of another. And that brings us to the third word we talked about, empathy. Mirror neuron systems are there. The parts of the brain are there. You just need to use them. We have the ability to do that. And even us men can learn empathy. Even us men are, are set up and wired to be able to do it. We may just have to work a bit harder at it. And lastly, I suggested to you that it was about generosity. That the idea of fairness was not helpful. That contract needs to be swapped for the idea of covenant because it is more helpful. Suggested that in relationships, being a bookkeeper doesn't actually work well because keeping a score of wrongs doesn't actually solve anything. We are to be imitators of the generosity that God has given us, the generosity that he has shared with us. I don't know whether Jesus was ever tempted to run back to his heavenly father. I tend to think he probably was. That there were times when Jesus wanted to go, you know, I just need to go back to heaven where I am appreciated, respected and loved and not down on this earth where I'm treated so badly. But the important thing is that that's not what Jesus did. You see, the decision to be in relationship is intentional and not always convenient. I would like to encourage you this morning, in your individual lives, in your church life, to move towards relationships. Avoid limp mode, shutting everything down so that you can just keep going. You are wired to connect. And when we live in connection, life goes better. Life is a little sweeter. For did Jesus not say, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly? May God bless you all in your relationships here in this church, in your family, in your personal relationships. Amen.